Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Freddie Sayers, and this is Unheard. Back in March, everyone's world suddenly changed. From this evening, I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. So on day one of lockdown, we launched Lockdown TV, a place where we could gather experts, scientists, writers, politicians, thinkers, to try to help us understand what was going on in this strange moment and what kind of world we were going to get at the end of it. And now, due to popular demand, here we are in podcast form. Welcome to Lockdown TV. Is big tech censoring people? Are the people they may or may not be censoring disproportionately on the political right? And what should conservatives on the political right make of that? What should they make of the past year? Is it time to update and change some of the things they've been believing for the last few years? Well, here to work that out with us is Saurabh Armari. There are toys now being sold of Dr. Fauci, our American kind of public health virus guru. The way people talk about the science no self-respecting scientist should accept that. When, when people talk about the science with a capital S, the claims that they make in its name are really moral and religious claims. He was born in Iran. He immigrated via Europe to America. He was formerly at the Wall Street Journal and is now editor of the New York Post opinion pages. And he has had a conversion in the last few years to Catholicism and has become an outspoken voice on the conservative traditionalist right in the US. Welcome, Saurabh. Hi there. So you have a new book out at the moment, The Unbroken Thread. And a couple of days ago, you became convinced that Amazon had removed it from the online store. What do you think actually happened? It wasn't so much that they removed it, is that they it seemed to have been, quote unquote, shadow banned from search results. That is, you could type the name of the book and it would still autocomplete on search. But then the results, among the search results that would come up, the book uh, wouldn't show up. And, you know, this is a book published by Penguin Random House in the United States. In Britain, it's published by Hodder and Stoughton. So it's like a mainstream book. And it was hovering in the top 100 overall kind of best-selling rank of, of books on Amazon. So it was, it was strange. And to be frank, my first assumption was that um, it, this was some sort of censorship. And the reason I leaped to that assumption and why I'm not, I don't regret making that assumption is the fact that, you know, I work at the New York Post and we had just gone through, as you, most of your viewers probably know, this Herculean battle against big tech over our Hunter Biden files reporting. Given the opacity with which these big tech giants operate, 
and the fact that we know they have an ideological axe to grind because I've, you know, as a New York Post staff member, I've been on the sharp end of it. Your first assumption is censorship. Now, it turns out, I think, I believe, and my publisher, uh, again, Random House, told me that they suspect this was some sort of glitch and it was fixed within 24 hours. But it's it, again, because you're dealing with a behemoth with whom there's no reasoning, it's very hard to get in touch to find out what's going on. And given their woke tendencies, you, you're likely to think your book disappears from a week after its launch and it must be some nefarious thing. Maybe you're paranoid, but maybe you're paranoid with reason. I mean, tell us about the Hunter Biden thing for people who don't know. What exactly happened during the election campaign? I was not involved in any of the reporting of, or editing of this Hunter Biden story. I was I uh, oversee the opinion pages, so um, the comments and columnists. But um, again, as you know, in, in October, on October 14th, so just three three weeks before the election, we published a story based on emails uh, from Hunter Biden to his business associates uh, at, an, at a Ukrainian energy company that appeared to show that he had uh, arranged meetings between this energy company, which was paying him at least $50,000 a month to serve as a board member, despite him having no expertise in Eastern European energy markets or what have you. And he was arranging meetings between them and his father, who was then the second most powerful man in the world and the Obama administration's point man on Ukraine. So I saw the story along with everyone else. I, it's not like I knew that we had this story coming. I, in the morning, I woke up at five in the morning, October 15th. I saw it on our app and was absorbed by it. But then at 10 o'clock, uh, we heard from Facebook that they had taken steps to, quote, reduce circulation on our story um, because it, it needed to be fact-checked. And then about an hour later, Twitter banned the story from being shared. Um, and you couldn't even, not only could you not share it on your public wall, but you couldn't share it on your private direct messages as well, which I think was just unbelievably sinister. And all on the on baseless grounds that that we had obtained hacked information, we had not. We were very clear about the chain of custody of how we had come across those emails. Neither Hunter nor his father disputed the authenticity of the emails and have yet to do so to this day. Um, neither him nor his father disputed the origins of the laptop and haven't done so to this day. In fact, Hunter more recently said it's, it is possible that he left the laptop at a repair shop, as we had alleged all along. And yet sort of the entire blue check media establishment ganged up against us with big tech cheering our censorship. And um, so we went through this long fight because the, Twitter wanted us to delete certain tweets. We refused to do so. They then changed the policy that we were supposed to have violated and said, okay, that policy doesn't apply anymore, but you still have to delete your emails. And we refused. And eventually they backed down. And of course, the New York Post is part of the News Corp family, so we can definitely fight back and we marshal a lot of resources. But it just goes to show if you're an ordinary American or an ordinary Brit, you know, you don't have that kind of resource. And so if you've been unpersoned by the big tech giants, you just, you do as they say. So do you now believe, looking back at that, that it was just naked partisan censorship? Or do you think inside those tech companies, there was a sort of rationale that they felt was justifiable and moral at the time? And what do you now think actually happened then? Well, I mean, Jack Dorsey of Twitter has recently commented that he thinks that uh, his firm made a mistake. It's notable, for example, that the Facebook employee who announced that our story was being reduced in circulation was a staffer for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee 
and a staffer for uh, Senator Barbara Boxer, who's a, a lawmaker from a Democratic lawmaker from California. And I know, I mean, I've, I've reported on these big tech, big tech companies. The owners or founders may be these kind of techno libertarians uh, circa, two, you know, 1999. But the people who staff the middle to upper middle level uh, engineers, but also, um, you know, safety teams and so forth, they're all thoroughly woke. And because they, Facebook especially got so much heat for allegedly helping Donald Trump get elected, um, not, it wasn't that Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate who, <laughs> whom working class Americans couldn't get behind. It was that the Russians had disseminated false information on Facebook. I think that Facebook felt a special kind of pressure to not let Donald Trump win again, even if that meant censoring a perfectly true story. I mean, the whole practice of reducing circulation on a story or suspending it, banning it, pending fact-checking is nonsense. First of all, the, the core of the story remains unchallenged. But more importantly, there were so many anti-Trump stories over the past four years in outlets like the New York Times, BuzzFeed, you name it, that collapsed under factual scrutiny, yet were never subjected to this uh, requirement that they, there has to be some fact-checking before they can be shared online. So. I do think it was mostly partisan censorship. Obviously, shortly after that, Trump himself was removed entirely from uh, the social media platforms. It comes at the end of a year, the lockdown COVID year, during which the acceptability of censoring or um, guiding the narrative on the apparently virtuous grounds of public health has also become very acceptable, both from the government, but also from the tech giants. I mean, we've fallen foul of it ourselves on a couple of occasions where you know, the, the, either YouTube or other uh, tech giants decide that something is too in contravention of a World Health Organization edict or too close to questioning something that might uh, be dangerous to public health. What's your view of that? Do you think that the last year has taken us in a dangerous direction? I understand governments and um including corporations um, facing a public health emergency where it's a fog of war and you're not sure uh, what's correct and you're worried about the dissemination of nonsense that could threaten people. You know, I'm not an absolute libertarian and I, far from it, in fact, I'm willing to grant governments and, and other you know, major actors some leeway in that. The problem is that, um, first of all, it was so nakedly politicized and the public health establishment in exercising its powers, including the power of censorship, took such an ideological line. I mean, my jaw dropped over the summer where they had said no gatherings, absolutely no gatherings. And then the Black Lives Matter riots and protests broke out. And then a thousand public health officials and epidemiologists put out a statement saying, well, racism is such a public health emergency too that, uh, you know, we can we can permit gatherings when, when that happens. So the virus can tell what your slogan is. If your slogan is, for example, you're a small business desperate to have your business reopened, it will attack you. But the novel coronavirus won't attack you if you're marching arm in arm and shouting, no justice, no peace. It can kind of, it, it's a smart virus. I'm joking, obviously, but the politicization of it. And the other fact is, I mean, I think what we saw, and I write about this in The Unbroken Thread, is the, the transmogrification of science from an open-ended inquiry, which is Every, every working scientist knows that there's every scientific claim is made within a range of a possibility for error. 
there's always you know further evidence to be gathered where your prior finding findings get revised and what have you but the scientific kind of expert class combined with the blue check media class began to treat science um, as the science with a capital s with this univocal thing that pronounces and then it's it's prophecy and it's written in stone and if you uh, if you run afoul of it as, as you just said then you must be silenced because you're violating what what the science says. What I'm really interested in is to see how the last year has affected your thinking. Because the book is essentially a, a, a celebration of the joy of limits, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a pushback against a perceived world of sort of boundless uh, so-called freedom, where everyone is encouraged to sh shake off tradition and throw off shackles. And it, the more free you are, the better. And you're basically arguing that that's not true and that traditions in various ways can, can help people live a more flourishing life. Do you still think after this past year we've had that we live in an era of unbounded freedom? Or do you now think the world is sort of different? I should restate my argument. I mean, you, you got it right in the sense that my book is a, is a case for tradition and specifically the classical and Christian traditions that are the, at the root of the West. And they all hold that f true freedom isn't merely the ability to choose from the widest range of options, but self-mastery, the ability to be detached from your baser appetites, and that in doing the, seeking that kind of freedom, you actually need authoritative guides that then help you come to terms with the moral dilemmas that, that life throws everyone's way. And that in, in encountering limits, natural limits, traditional limits, we remain free, whereas the loss of those limits leaves us vulnerable, both to our own baser appetites, but also to exploitative forces that would restrict our freedom even more. So in this case, the novel coronavirus and our response to it did not change my worldview at all. I think, in, in fact, it validated my view that one way or another, human beings are going to be subject to authorities. The question is whether the authority is a, is a reasonable one. It's one that's time tested by the wisdom of, of, of prior generations or a new kind of authority that would be much more unreasonable, much more willing to use blunt force to get its way. And I think what we saw over the past year was that the kind of scientific come journalistic establishment come corporate establishment, all became that kind of an authority and an authority much less reasonable, much more capricious than the older traditions that I support in my book, because they held up one good, one human good, which is the avoidance of one disease over against all the other goods that tradition tries to protect, such as the right to worship, the right to family life, the right to communal life. Um, that we need these things to be fully human. But w w again, the point is that the, the individual, when he's unbounded from that kind of true authority of the traditions that make what it means to be fully human and shape the Western mind, is much more vulnerable to these kind of scientific, ideological demagogues over the past year. I, mean, I guess I would push back a little bit and say that the last year has felt very different in atmosphere to previous years. Uh, in that public good, a moralistic sense of public good, which really you've been arguing should be more in the, in the public domain, for example, at the centre of government decisions, 
has been everywhere. And we suddenly got a, a little bit of a sense maybe of care for what you wish for, because suddenly the government is all full of a public good and self-sacrifice. And, you know, we will police every last decision people make in the interests of the wider public good. It sounded very moralistic. It just might not have been the morals that you agreed with. Did any part of you think, whoa, if, if, we're, going to, if we're going to allow governments to make those kind of moralistic decisions, what happens if we don't like their morals? What I've always called for is reasonable moral authority. The reasonable use. Every government does this, even in non-pandemic times. Governments act for the common good. There's no government actor that ultimately doesn't, in one way or another, act with some account of the public good in mind. The problem is when in responding to, for example, a pandemic, unmoored from, again, traditional Judeo-Christian classical accounts of what it means to pursue the common good, they act irrationally. So someone like me who supports the concept of the common good, which is as old as Aristotle and as old as St. Thomas Aquinas, needn't necessarily support a lawlessness in other words, rejecting the liberal concept of authority of the highest good being vested in just individual choice and rejecting the notion that uh, maximizing individual autonomy should be the pursuit of all governments. If you reject that, it doesn't mean that you support a lawlessness or you support irrational government. In other words, when you a, a common good actor like me, when he sees, for example, that we there's serious questions about whether masks have any efficacy, wouldn't insist on wearing masks just as a kind of public superstition. The other thing I would say is, I think some of the overreactions we saw with respect to the novel coronavirus, in a way, to me, seemed to be a longing for limits of the kind I've called for, but coming in in a kind of distorted, weird way, basically without religion and without... So, for example, um, it, it did feel like in the lead up to the 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 virus, our lives were too limitless. And we were, there were some aspects of our lives that were unsustainable. There's this kind of yearning for some sort of limits. Um, unfortunately, the way that we came up upon them is not limits that, got, again, is guided by the wisdom of generations, but by kind of authoritarian bureaucrats and technocrats. But there was something about our pre-pandemic lives that were unsustainable. And it's unfortunate that um, the yearning for limits ultimately became answered by these types of um, authorities, which um, in some ways just accelerated the trends that existed before the pandemic, not least overweening corporate power. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at olivenjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. So you think that there's almost a religious replacement thing going on then. The, the, sure. The absence of those kind of religious authorities has meant that people have found a kind of distorted equivalent elsewhere in some of this public health messaging. Yes. I mean, down to uh, there are toys now being sold of Dr. Fauci, our American kind of public health virus guru, you know, and the way people talk about the science no self-respecting scientist should accept that when, when people talk about the science with a capital S, the claims that they make in its name are really moral and religious claims. But they've been, as you said, they've been, it's a sort of substitute religion. It only goes to show that there's no kind of neutral public square. There's no public square without where there's some altar, something put up as an altar on an, a shrine and treated as uh, sacred, authoritative. It's just a question of what you choose. I pick the West's older religious and philosophical traditions over the cult of Dr. Fauci. What's interesting, having paid quite close attention to the conservative right over the past year, is that they were divided on this point. There were quite a few people who would describe themselves as traditional conservatives or post-liberals or whatever you want to call it, who were kind of keen on lockdowns. I'm quite keen on the idea that people would get to know their families once again and get to know their neighbors and we wouldn't be flying around cross borders anymore. We'd have strong nation state. And it was a lot of the stuff that the conservative right had been arguing for for quite a long time. Suddenly they got it and they were divided. So it turns out you sort of, you went on one side. Did you have colleagues and fellow travelers who were rather more keen on it than you were? No, I think all of my kind of traditionalist slash post-liberal comrades opposed the lockdowns because we saw in it the working out of the same, some of the same liberal urges that we critique. So, for example, in its refusal to put one source of death in perspective next to other sources of death. So, for example, treating the coronavirus as this one horrible thing and ignoring that, you know, kids not being educated can also be deadly because they're lonely and suicides are going up and so on and so forth. And that we can just with absolute human mastery conquer this thing rather than accepting death itself or disease as just a part of life. And that doesn't mean that we should be irrational or not take precautions or not seek scientific treatments or what have you. But this kind of Promethean attitude was reflected in the lockdowns, in the bureaucratic response to it. That's, that's one aspect. I do have, I mean, I think 
I'm trying to think of others. I've noticed one of your contributors, Ed West, I guess, would be in that other category of saying, here we go. Now we find some limits. The problem is it's who's imposing the limits to what ends. I see the same trends continuing or, or accelerating. The destruction of, of small business empowers who? It empowers Amazon. It empowers other giant corporations that mistreat their workers and pay penury wages. The destruction of embodied relationships where we can gather together empowers who? It empowers tech giants that in communicate, that facilitate communication across channels like this. And we become more isolated, more disembodied, more Gnostic. The very close issue to the one we just talked about is the relationship with China. And again, there's been a, there's a confusion on the conservative right, I would say, about this. You get some people who are very anxious about any uh, imitation of a more Chinese model of government. And then you get some conservatives who are quite admiring of it. You published a tweet recently, which you uh, subsequently removed because, it, as you said, it was being misunderstood. But it's kind of an interesting fault line on this question. I'm just going to read it out here. You, you wrote, I'm at peace with the Chinese-led 21st century. Late liberal America is too dumb and decadent to last as a superpower. Chinese civilization, especially if it recovers more of its Confucian roots, will possess a great deal of natural virtue. So some people hearing that will be like, whoa, you know, everything they believe is that we don't want to imitate China. What did you mean? I should uh, set the context for this. Neil Ferguson, who wrote a piece about this tweet uh, in The Spectator, got it right. He said it, it was Amari in a moment of despondency or despair. <laughs> what had just happened was we, we, that very hour, the CIA had released these recruitment videos. I don't know if you saw them, but it's a CIA agent walking through the agency's floor and saying, I am an intersectional feminist, cisgender female with social anxiety disorder. And I am proud to be part of the CIA, you know, like this kind of pure woke PC recruitment. And I just thought, compare that to the ch to China in terms of how it thinks about national power, sacrifice, duty, and what you have to do to advance China's interests, which, by the way, are horrendous in many cases. And what China's agenda is, is nothing that I would want a part of. But the fact that our main intelligence agency structures its recruitment around, you know, these intersectional themes just made me think, oh, we're so lost compared to any kind of serious power that has a sense of national well-being. Why do you join an intelligence agency? Not to reaffirm your own cisgender intersectional blah, blah, blah. You do it to serve the nation. So <laughs> Neil Ferguson got at this. He was like, he's it's, it's out of despondency. And it was. And there's an element of, you know, I, for one, welcome our alien overlords kind of joke in there, but no, you know, very few got it. And so I took it down. That said, I would say, look, I mean, I'm married into a Chinese family in the sense that my wife's Chinese born and um, I've traveled to mainland China. There's a tendency to view China as communist and has nothing else. And to imagine that the communist takeover of 1949 utterly decimated all of its, you know, three, four millennia old substrate of traditions. And that's not true. For example, Chinese filiality is a real phenomenon. And it's something that obviously we had in the West too. We didn't necessarily call it filiality. We called it uh, uh, the commandment to honor your mother and your father. That's a strong force. And that can bind, you know, family, community, individual. It doesn't mean we should imitate China's social credit system, although we are. It's just that we do it with corporations and, and private actors instead of a centralized government. It doesn't mean we should, God forbid, do anything like what they do with 
with Uyghurs or whatever. I mean, I, I'm aware of communist China's absolute moral horrors. The question is whether we're in our decadent individualism, we're missing the fact that uh, decadent, but weirdly conformist. In other words, all of our individualism is we're all different in the same way. You know, that's the, that's the model. But in doing that, we're missing real things like you if you have stronger families, if you have two parent households, if you have unbreakable bonds of marriage and so forth, you'll have stronger uh, communities, you'll have a stronger nation. So in that sense, we'll just, I, I was warning my fellow conservatives not to be complacent. It doesn't mean we should imitate anything of the Communist Party's agenda. It's kind of the big issue, I feel like, on the conservative right, though, because there's a sense of in which Western governments, as you say, have been decadent, individualistic, distracted by pointless side issues, and weak and insufficiently um, willing to impose or take big muscular actions in defense of the common good. That's the, a, a critique that's been the big one on the conservative right. And yet, when we see a, a regime like China being a very muscular regime that is not bothered by due processes and, and silly distractions and is patriotic and it just takes the decisions it needs, you then see how sinister that can become. So I, I do. it does feel like a live issue. Like, how strong do you want the government to be in projecting their vision of the common good? It's important to distinguish that the common good is, is it, there are any number of things. Let's give an example. Common good are things that only the community can secure, and there are goods that are not diminished by being shared. So peace is a common good. I cannot individually achieve peace. It has to be established by a, a people as a whole. And the fact that I get to enjoy peace and my neighbor and that neighbor over two doors over enjoys peace, we all get to share it is not diminished by that. Justice is another one. You know, educating children is another one. So a common good politics need not mean a lawless politics or a due process free, for example, less politics. It, this is kind of an appropriation of liberalism, frankly, as an ideology, where we've come to believe that prior to liberalism, there was no such thing as due process. There was no such thing as human dignity. There was no such thing as just versus unjust accounts of unjust rule. When in fact, okay, a lot of those things have roots in Christendom. They have roots in our classical tradition, which decidedly isn't liberal, but it's full of rich accounts of justice. Uh, Cicero is not a theoretician for Xi Jinping style tyranny, but he is for the common good. Aristotle and St. Thomas are not, you know, uh, communist style tyrants, but they do call for and that politics should be ordered to the common good, including a society that leads its people to virtue. And in his treatise on law, St. Thomas, quoting Aristotle, says private exhortations, as liberals would have it, are not enough to lead a, a people to virtue because they don't have the force of coercion. Now, Every, every kind of law coerces. The question is, does it coerce for the sake of virtue? Does it coerce with a kind of love, loving disciplinary hand? Or is it just an irrational tyranny like you have in communist China? But it's important to distinguish that, that liberalism didn't invent the things, most of the things that it claims credit for. The administrative state has been around for millennia. The woke fundamentalists that you are so much against, they probably think they are being coercive in the service of virtue. Similarly, the public health overlord Fauci worshippers also think they're being coercive in the name of virtue. And I suspect even the tech giants, when they kick off people's videos that they don't like, think they're being coercive in the name of virtue. Has anything of the past year 
made you a little more cautious about the concept of virtue in the hands of great powers? What that just shows you is that it's impossible to live in a society that, that is premised on pure moral neutrality. Every kind of society ultimately will enshrine some morality or other. Every society. What we've seen over the past year is the impossibility of neutrality. This was the li great liberal promise. You can have your account of the common good, and I can have my account of the common good. You can believe that there are 57 genders, and I can believe that, yeah, there are only two as far as biological sex is concerned. But we don't need to settle the question of reality. One or the other can coexist together. What we've seen is one or the other, you either stand for a truth, that good things are good and bad things are bad, or you, you get someone else imposing their own morality, which is much more untethered from the truth. For example, when it comes to gender and sexuality, or when it comes to our own history, rewriting our own history so that it's all a mix of horrible pasts and, and Churchill was just as bad as Hitler and Lincoln was just as bad as the Confederate generals. So that's not true. But if you don't stand up for the truth and if you don't enshrine the truth, someone else will enshrine nonsense. Your book ends with a letter to your young son, Maximilian, and it's, it's kind of concerned about the future that he's going to grow up in. And you're hoping that he looks to some ancient wisdoms in order to guide him through it. Do you feel as anxious as ever about the future? I mean, do you, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel at this point? As a Christian, I'm commanded to be hopeful, and I'm hopeful. It's a, it's a, hope is a theological virtue. But um, no, I, I feel like we're headed into some sort of, <laughs> yeah, it's funny, it's like, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Blade Runner 2049, or any number of dystopias, there's this quality, my friend Patrick Deneen says, where liberal societies are very good at depicting dystopias. And we all sense that we're sort of in slow motion, we're headed there. And yet we can't, somehow we can't put a stop to it. We can't short circuit the process and step back and say, can we actually not go down this direction? I'm extremely worried about lockdown norms, about, for example, people not meeting in person becoming permanent. I'm extremely uh, worried about masking as a permanent reality. Well, we conquered the coronavirus, but the flu is just as bad. I mean, there are the obvious social conservative concerns about this sort of massive pornographization of, of daily life. The fact that Max is, you know, statistically speaking, likely to encounter hardcore pornography before he hits puberty, nine out of 10 that's a that's a pretty unnatural, bizarre society, right? That's a that's a really disturbed society. The fact that uh, I mean, I could go on and on, but um, no, I mean, for the short term, I have nothing but pessimism. In terms of from a kind of theological horizon, I'm hopeful. Okay, we'll we'll take that. I mean, maybe we'll get Max on in twenty years' time, and he can say how he felt about that letter when he grew up. That'd be a good experiment. Sorab, thanks for your time. Thank you. Bye, Freddy. That was Saurabh Armari. His book, The Unbroken Thread, is out now. He is also editor of the New York Post, and we were digging in there to some quite interesting and tricky issues around what people on the right of politics, who have been calling for more moralistic, more strong, more interventionist government, should make of the past year. Should they change their mind or not? That was really interesting. I enjoyed it. Thanks to him and thanks for watching. Also, this was Lockdown TV.
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.